0: The year was 1856, and William Arthur published a book which closed with a prayer. The end of the book in 1856 closed with, closed with a prayer pleading to God to do this quote, He said, God crowned this 19th century with a revival of pure and undefiled religion greater than any demonstration of the Spirit ever vouchsafed to man. That's an awesome prayer. Now, I had to look up the word vouchsafe. The word vouchsafe means to graciously offer. The end of the book in 1856 by, uh, by William Arthur was a cry to God to send revival with the graciousness that only God's Spirit can bring because the church in 1856 was going through a very difficult time. In fact, someone wrote an account of this event and said in 1857, churches were declining. Thousands of Americans were disillusioned with Christianity. 1857, about 150 years ago... And it seems like we're back to that spot now. Would you agree with me? We're kind of back to that spot now where a great many Americans are disillusioned with Christianity or not embracing Christianity, and it seems like the church is declining. Statistics tell us that church attendance is declining, giving is declining, baptisms are declining, participation in churches is declining. It seems like a low moment. God has a way of working in the low moments. Jeremiah Lamphere, a concerned layman in the church, just a regular old church member, he started a noon prayer meeting for New York businessmen. And only six people came the first day he had the prayer. On September the 23rd, 1857, they met on the third floor of the constatory of the Old Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in New York City. By the spring, these daily prayer gatherings were attracting in various locations more than 10,000 people for noonday prayer meetings. Why do you think? I've asked myself, why is it that the 10,000 people were attracted to these prayer meetings? I think it's because people were disillusioned with Christianity. They were disillusioned with the church. But that means they were hungry and thirsty for the real thing. Because in the absence of the real thing, there is a hunger and a thirst that develops in our soul. And they might not find it in this church or that church. It could be a dead church. It could be a heretical church. Anything could be going on. But listen, people are hungry for the real thing. You know that, right? They're hungry and they're thirsty for the real thing. When news began to spread that there were daily prayer meetings where sinners were welcomed, prayed for, and encouraged to turn to Christ. And think about that. I'm reading an historical account. When the word got out that these daily prayer meetings were places where sinners were welcomed. Are sinners welcomed in our church? I know we know that because we're here, Right? But do those outside the church that are sinners know that they're welcomed in the church? Do they know that by the invitation we give them, by the welcome we give them? Do, do they know that? So when they were, they were welcomed and prayed for and encouraged to turn to Christ, some hardened criminals were saved. I love I this one right here. A notorious criminal nicknamed. You think about a notorious nickname. Nicknamed Awful Gardener." That was his nickname? Awful. You're so, but you're awful. We're going to call you awful. He surprised everyone when he found Christ through the prayer meetings. And he was not alone. The account goes on to say, Hundreds of people who had spent their nights in the gates of hell came to the prayer meetings that had begun now in the evenings. Wealthy people generously helped the poor whom they regarded as their brothers and sisters in Christ. Ships coming into New York Harbor came under the power of God's presence. I found this hard to believe, but I've read it so many places, I know it had to be true. Ships coming into the harbor came under God's presence. On one ship, the captain and 30 men were converted to Christ before the ship ever docked. Four sailors knelt for prayer in the depths of the battleship North Carolina in New York Harbor. They began to sing, and their ungodly shipmates came running down and made fun of them, but the power of God gripped them, and they humbly knelt in repentance. You talk about the presence of God somewhere. Do you have to stop business at noon to go to a prayer meeting? A customer from Albany asked a New York City merchant, Yes, I must. Why don't you go with me? The customer went, and the customer received Christ that day. This whole stirring that took place in Northeast and spread across much of what was America in that time is is called the Layman's Prayer Revival. It started with one man, a layman, a regular old church member looking out and recognizing that the church is going down the tubes and the people are hungry and thirsty. I don't know what to do, so I'm going to pray. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Sometimes prayer changes our circumstances. Sometimes prayer changes us in the midst of unchanging circumstances. But prayer changes things. In Acts chapter 12, that's where we are this morning. I want to invite you to turn there in your Bible, Acts chapter 12. We're going to cover verses 1 through 19. And we find here in Acts chapter 12 that God delivered Peter from prison and certain death and execution the next day. God delivered Peter as the church prayed. Is there a connection between the two? Some would say no. I would say yes. The scripture makes it clear. Let me give you a summary of these verses. If you you were to read verses 1 to 5, you find that at this time of history that, that Christians are being persecuted and killed simply because they were Christians. We find that Peter is in jail. His execution has been planned. And at that moment, it seemed like the church may just go down the tubes, never to be seen again. And the people, the church, was gathered to pray. It was a very difficult time. You can imagine what it must have been like at that time. In verses 6 through 11, as Peter now is in jail the night before his scheduled execution, he's in jail and an angel shows up. You know what an angel is, right? It's a messenger of God. The angel shows up, wakes up Peter, tells him to get dressed. His chains fall off, the guards are asleep, and he leads Peter out. And Peter, once he figures out where he's at, verses 12 to 16, he goes to the prayer meeting. He knows they're praying for him. He's been delivered. He goes to the prayer meeting. And the people that are praying for the release of Peter suddenly say, I don't believe it. You ever prayed for something and God answered and you said, I don't believe it? In verse 17 of Acts chapter 12, Peter reported to the prayer meeting. He told them to go tell the church leaders and he left to go somewhere else as they were meeting there to pray, probably for his own safety. Let me make a couple of comments here. One is that a gospel-focused church, do we want to be a gospel-focused church? A gospel-focused church is a gospel-praying church. A gospel-focused church is a gospel-praying church. And I also would say this. As we're seeking to live life on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing that as we go through the book of Acts, we're seeing the theme is living life on mission. I'm not just trying to be like people in the first century. I want to be like the person God's called me to be. And those happen to be those folks there in the first century in the church. I want my life to be a life on mission. I'm praying and trusting. You want your life to be a life on mission. So a life on mission means that we're going to produce mission-focused prayer. Mission, the the gospel, the, the the mission God has given us. We're going to pray for that mission to be successful. In addition to all the other praying that we do, and there's nothing wrong with what we do, but we're going to focus our prayers on accomplishing the mission of winning every man possible, every woman possible every boy possible, every girl possible, to saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The key verse I want you to look at today is, is verse number 5 there in Acts chapter 12. I invite you to stand with me if you will. We're going to read this verse together. Acts chapter 12 and verse number 5. This, this is, a, is the key verse. It's a pivotal verse. It's a, it's a, it's a changing verse. It, it, it's where everything hinges on this moment. From this moment, everything changes, much like the end of the ball game last night. We're going to talk, not going to talk about it anymore, but, but, but from this moment, from this moment right here in verse 5, everything changed and was no longer the same. So in verse 5, here's what we get. Peter was kept in prison. He's locked up. James has already been killed. Others are being persecuted. It looks dark. The, the music is playing in the background. don dun, dun, dun. It looks, it looks hopeless. So I want you to read the verse with me on the screen. Acts 12 and verse 5. Let's read together. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I want you to notice a couple of things here that are important. One of the biggest words in the English language and one of the biggest words in the Scripture is the word but. The word but is a a word of contrast This is happening over here, but at the same time, this is happening over here. And to this point, these two things are happening simultaneously, and the outcome has not yet been shown. Over here, it looks hopeless. Over here, people are praying. Over here, where people are praying, there's no guarantee of the outcome. Now, you know what they're praying, don't you? Oh, God. Deliver Peter. Oh God, deliver us from this persecution. Oh God, may the gospel go forth. Oh God, give us strength to stand firm in our faith. We know they're praying that, but in that environment, there's no guarantee. Peter is scheduled to be executed tomorrow. And so many others have already been executed. So there's no guarantee, but there's prayers going up. And over here, there's Peter who is sitting there in jail. Whatever's happened has gotten him to this point, and Herod has discovered the Jews like it when I kill the Christians. So here's the next one on the list. And Peter is there chained between two guards in his mind knowing tomorrow's it. That's it tomorrow. Tomorrow's my day. No guarantee of anything. And the church is praying. Oh God, teach us to be a praying church. Lord, many pray in this church down through the years. Many are praying right now. So many awesome prayers are lifted up on a regular basis. Lord, not to diminish any other prayers, but Lord, teach us to be a praying church. Teach us to be an expectant church. Teach us to be a trusting church. Teach us, Lord, to be a faithful church. May our prayers result in change, change in our circumstances, change in our hearts, change in our families, change in our community. Not because of anything we do, but because of your response, your answer, your word, your spirit, your impact in and through us for your glory. We pray Jesus in your holy name. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to keep that, keep that verse on the screen there, if you would, Bill, and uh, verse number five. And I want you to notice a, a couple of things about this verse. There's this contrast that's going on. And I want you to notice at the beginning there, it speaks about the opposition that's taking place. What is the opposition? The opposition to the gospel is that Peter is under arrest and is in prison. And I want you to also notice the contrast of what's going on. The people are praying. Why, why is it that people pray? People pray because they, they want to see God move. They pray because they, they want to see God change things. They pray because they don't want things to stay the same. People pray sometimes as a first resort, sometimes as a last resort. You ever been around some, somewhere and, and things are bad, and somebody says, well, we tried everything else, we may as well pray. And maybe that's where the church was. It doesn't say but it does say that they were praying. So I want you to notice the next slide. I've kind of reworked it a little bit and, and reworked the, the verbiage on it to make it apply to us today. So, so, so we could say that same verse this way. So opposition to the gospel is happening. Opposition to the gospel is happening. And we can spend a lot of time, and I, I don't have the time this morning, we can spend a lot of time and look at different areas of the world where opposition to the gospel is happening overtly, and, 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 and with legal terms and in militaristic terms and in religious terms, opposition to the gospel is happening on a large scale in our world today. Opposition to the gospel is also happening on a smaller scale, even among some of us in this room. Perhaps in a family setting where people... In your family don't support the fact that you are a Christian and a follower of Christ, and they let you know about that and ridicule or mock you. There are people I've talked to down through the years. That's their story. I mean, it's a a struggle to get up and even just get to church because of the opposition they're facing. Some in this room, perhaps, are even facing opposition in, in the workplace. Maybe you have a boss or some coworkers, and, and they're not fond of the fact that you don't join them in, in the talk around the cooler or, or in, the, in the derogatory language that, that takes place or in, the, or in the, the, the immoral practices that take place either between individuals or the company. Uh, on more than one occasion, I've had people tell me that they're looking for another job because the job that they're in requires them to do things that violate their faith. Opposition to the faith is happening. But... But that word of contrast, earnest prayer is being made to God by the church. I want to be a part of a praying church. I want to be a part of a praying church that is serious about the mission that God has called us to and the consequences that we face and the opposition. That we face. I love the word earnest. There, I looked it up to make sure I had the right, the right verbiage to go with it. But but that earnest prayer is not just casual prayer. It's not just haphazard prayer. It's not just off the cuff prayer. Earnest prayer is serious prayer. It is passionate prayer. It is prayer with conviction. It is heartfelt prayer. It is intense prayer. These people came ready to pray. And they were praying earnestly. How long had they been praying? We don't know. How long had Peter been in jail? Well, we don't know. Had they been meeting the whole time he was in jail? Did they meet just for for this special occasion? We just don't know the circumstances of this particular prayer. But what we do know is that when they got together, there was some earnest prayer going on. They weren't just mouthing the words. I've been in circumstances sometimes, and I've been guilty of it too, so I'm not, I'm not, making, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody except myself as well, where we, we tend to get in a rut with our prayers, and our prayers that we prayed a week ago, we could have recorded it and played the same prayer today because we use the same words all the time, because we're getting that prayer rut. And there's nothing wrong with using some of the same phrases and terminologies, but if we're not careful, we can mouth all the right words and it not be impacting our hearts. And it not be sincerely offered to God in worship. But these church members, however many there were there, were gathered and they were praying earnestly, with conviction. Who are they praying for? They're praying for believers. Believers like you and I. When opposition to the church is happening, opposition to the gospel is taking place in our lives, what's the most important thing we can do? Read a book. Go to a seminar, learn how to share our testimony, read the Bible. All those things are true. But the most important thing we can do is pray to the one who can strengthen us. The one who can change our circumstances and the one who can change us in the midst of our circumstances, even if it provides that our circumstances don't change. So prayer is Essential. I want want to go ahead and tell you now that at the end of the message, I'm I'm going to end up early enough, where it's not going to take any extra time. But at the end of the message, we're going to flow into what I'm going to call a season of prayer, a time of prayer that I'm going to ask you to get involved with this morning. And, And and I'm going to tell you now, it makes it makes a lot of people a little uncomfortable to talk about prayer. And having a season of prayer. A lot of times, say, well, that, a lot of people say, well, that's a good time. I'll make my grocery list. I'll check out the score of the ball game. I'll see, well, I'll, I'll text my friend across the. Way. No, I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to, to even now just plan in your heart that when we have that season, it's not going to be long and drawn out, but we have a season of prayer. Would you even now just begin to say, well, I want to be a part of that, whatever that looks like? I'm looking forward to that part, that season of prayer that will take place as our service concludes today. So so with that in mind, using Acts chapter 12, I want to give you four prayer lessons this morning that are important for us to learn about. One is, don't be surprised when opposition comes because of your faith. Don't be surprised. If you're seeking to live out your faith for the Lord Jesus Christ in your circumstances, whatever they may be, It may just be you at home with one other person. It may be you at work with 20 other people. It may be you in in a platform where you have influence over hundreds of thousands. Wherever it is, don't be surprised when opposition comes, and the opposition comes not because of your hairstyle or the team you pull for or anything else, but when it comes simply because you're determined to live out your faith as a Christian. Listen to to verses 1 through 5. About that time. Now, remember... They, 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 uh, in Antioch, they've gathered this offering. They're sending it to Judea. The famine's taking place. Persecution's taking place. So while that's taking place and the, and the offering is being received by Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, while that's going on, about that same time, verse 1, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. We don't know who they were in general. It just says some. And he laid violent hands. He persecuted some of them prison persecution, loss of property, death. Verse number 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James and John. You remember James and John, the two brothers who were disciples, the followers of Jesus. John, the Gospel of John, the Book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That's John, his brother James. And remember the two of them together, what were they called? The sons of? Sons of Thunder. Well, Herod took one of them out with a sword because he was a Christian. He killed him. It's the only report we have of it. Don't know, don't know the circumstances. Well, we know that James, the brother of John, the sons of thunder, James was killed with a sword. Verse 3. And when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, they liked that. They like Another one bites the dust. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Because James was James was a big one, but Peter's a bigger one. So they liked it when I got James. They're really going to like me when I get Peter. He arrested Peter during the days of unleavened bread, verse 4. And when he had seized him, seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, 16 soldiers, intending after the Passover to bring him out or to execute him, to bring him out to the people for execution, verse number 5, our key verse. So Peter was kept in prison. This is what's going on. Peter was kept in prison, but never Forget the but. Amen? Never forget. There's a contrast. Never think that what you see outwardly and what you see circumstantially is all that there is because God is at work. But the church, earnest prayer for Him was made to God by the church. For Him, to God, by the church. Prayer made for Him, to God, the church. By the church. Say that phrase with me. For him, to God, by the church. That's that's what's going on here in this passage. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, Paul writes these words. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You're saying right now, I didn't sign up for that part. I signed up for Sunday school and snacks and picnics and, and helping little kids out. I didn't sign up for suffering. I understand that. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, even an impending execution. But in everything by prayer, there's our word, by prayer, in everything by prayer, not just some of the things, but all the things that you're going through, in in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Pray. And look what the promise is. And the peace of God, the peace of God. Will surpass, that surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You're suffering for the sake of the gospel. Your circumstances may not change, but through prayer, God will give you peace. You're in a great time of victory because people are coming to Christ and the church is growing, celebrating, awesome. When you pray, God will give you peace in those circumstances. Well, what are some circumstances today that are demanding of earnest prayer by the church what are some things today? I'm being a little, a little generic here, but, but let me just mention a few. One is attacks on believers. Believers are being attacked today simply because of the fact that they are believers. Sometimes it's happening by the church. Did you know that? Those who call themselves Christians, those who call themselves a denomination of Christians, are turning on others because of holding on to a biblical, the biblical truth of the Scriptures. It's happening out in our culture. In some places, the government is turning on believers. In the Middle East and in Asia and other places, sometimes sometimes it's an employer. Sometimes it's your fellow students at school. Sometimes it's members of other religions. Sometimes it's those who call themselves Christians and they turn against you because you're living a faith based on the Scripture. And when that happens, it may cost you your reputation. It may cost you your stuff, may cost you your health, and even sometimes your family may very well cost your life. We don't live in those circumstances in this present time. I'm not trying to tell you that when you walk out these doors, it's about to break loose. But do know that throughout history and throughout our world today, these things are happening to those who call themselves Christians. And because of that, we as believers should be in earnest prayer for those who are under attack because of their faith. Do you agree with me this morning? We should pray for those who are under attack for their faith. We don't pray enough for those folks. We need to make sure that we are. I need to make sure that we are. Secondly, circumstances demanding earnest prayer. When the desire of one group to please another group leads the first group to oppose Christian faith in the church. For example, with Herod. Herod could have cared less about the church. He could have cared less about James. He could have cared less about Peter. But when Herod saw that by taking the life of Christians and James, who made the Jews happy, and if the Jews are happy, now Herod's going to be happy because there's going to be relative peace and he's not going to have to put up with an uprising. So when he saw this made them happy, he's going to take care of this group over here by putting them to death and persecuting them. And that happens all throughout history. We need to make sure we're praying in those circumstances earnestly. Thirdly, we need to pray when Christians are opposed and persecuted and threatened because of their Christian faith. When you go to work and it costs you something because of your faith, you need to let folks know so they can pray for you. When you go to school and and other classmates or teachers come against you because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to let other folks know to be praying for you. Because God changes things and God works and God answers our prayer. And sometimes I really believe God puts us in circumstances to prompt us to pray because God already wants to deliver us. And there are those times, I really believe, that we miss out on the deliverance because we're not following the prompting of God to pray. We just get all tore up over our circumstances. And fourthly, we need to pray earnestly when it looks like there's no hope. The church could have gathered together and gave a report. Well, James is dead. Others are persecuted. Peter's in jail. They're going to execute him tomorrow. The best thing we can do is shut it down and go home. There's no hope. And when it seems like there's no hope, we need to be earnestly in prayer because see, earnest prayer should also be expectant prayer do we expect God to change and move in our circumstances when we pray The missionary Jim Elliott famously said these words attempt great things for God expect great things from God we should pray expectantly It doesn't mean that God is obligated to answer any of our prayers. But as we pray, it gets us in tune with what God's will is. And before we know it, we are carrying out the will of God and we understand the purposes of God. So so don't be surprised when opposition, opposition comes because of your faith. And secondly, the second lesson we need to learn is this. Don't be surprised when God does not deliver you. Don't be surprised. When you pray and it looks hopeless and you 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 expect God's going to move and God's going to work. Because God can do anything, right? God can do anything. Don't be surprised if he doesn't choose to change your circumstances. Acts chapter 7, a significant event took place. The stoning of Stephen. Stephen was not delivered. He was killed. James... Leader of the church, one of the disciples, the follower of Jesus, James, was put to death by the sword. Did they cut his head off? Did they run him through? We don't know. But he was not delivered. Paul, who we've been introduced to at the end of of, uh, Acts chapter 7 and his testimony in Acts chapter 9, Paul went about persecuting and, it says, ravaging the church. He arrested Christians, threw them in jail, and he approved when they they were put to death those Christians. Christians were not delivered. Don't be surprised... When God does not deliver, God is not obligated to answer our prayer in any particular way. That's why I tried to say earlier, sometimes God changes our circumstances and answers our prayer. Sometimes He changes us in the midst of our circumstances. And if nothing else, He gives us the peace to endure and to go through, knowing there's a higher purpose that we're not aware of, that God is at work. I want to call your attention to to Hebrews chapter 11, the roll call of faith. Hebrews, I've preached through Hebrews chapter 11 before. I'm looking forward to and someday preaching through Hebrews chapter 11 again. I love Hebrews chapter 11. It's the roll call of faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, you read about Moses, and you read about Noah, and you read about Abraham, and you read about Abel, and you read about, about all these great people who, because of their faith, experienced great victories. Somebody say amen to that. That's awesome i want to put, if I'm going to be in Hebrews 11, I want to be in the top part of Hebrews 11. And Mark, by faith, was able to accomplish great things because God worked in and through his life. But the end of Hebrews chapter 11 is still about heroes of the faith, but they're not named. They're simply called others. Others. You know, there's Bob and there's Susie and there's this guy and there's that guy. You'll never know who they are. They're, they're, they're nameless. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 to 38. These people that are faithful, because they're in Hebrews chapter 11, the roll call of faith, they're there, they're not identified by name, they're simply called others, and they're awesome heroes. It says, starting in verse 36 of Hebrews 11, others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains in imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. They lost it all for one reason, Jesus. Question. If you lost it all because of Jesus, would Jesus be enough? I hope my answer is yes. I want my answer to be yes. If you lost it all for the purpose of following Jesus, would you still love and follow Jesus? Sometimes faithfulness unto death, sometimes faithfulness unto death is part of God's purpose. So don't be surprised if God doesn't deliver you. It doesn't mean God's not able, it doesn't mean God's not willing. It may mean God's got a higher purpose and He's using you in a greater way in persecution and even death than He could ever use you in life. We just have to accept that. Now, the thirdly, the third lesson don't be surprised when God does deliver you. <laughs> Sometimes we pray and God answers that prayer. I really believe sometimes God prompts us in our spirit to pray for particular things that he wants to answer before he ever prompts us to pray, to show us that he is at work and to show us the value of our prayers. And, and so, so, so see, Peter thought he was going to die the next day. This is it. I don't know if they gave him a last supper. I don't know, I don't know what happened, but he, he's, he's sleeping, he's chained, guards everywhere. He's going to die the next day, but then God sent an angel. God sent an angel, and when the angel showed up, the light came, the chains fell off, the guards were asleep, went to sleep, and the, and the angel said to Peter, you know, Peter's a typical man. The angel had to say, hey, wake up, put your clo- put your shoes on, get your cloak, get all these things together, and, and follow me. The angel had to tell him every step along the way. Peter's a man. He can't help it, right? <laughs> Verse number nine, Peter went out and followed the angel. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. He's laying there sleeping. He's thinking, God's giving me some kind of a vision. Verse number 10, when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. The gate opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So here's Peter sleeping. The angel pops and says, Peter, get up. Get your shoes on. Get this and and follow me. Chains fall. Guards asleep. Follows the angel out. Gets to the gate. Peter's saying, what's going to happen here? I'm just seeing this vision. The gate opens. They walk out together. They go one street over and the angel disappears. I mean, she's gone. And Peter suddenly finds himself by himself outside of the prison. Verse number 11. When Peter came to himself, he kind of woke up. This is real. He said, now I'm sure that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting me to die, but now the angel has rescued me because the Lord has sent the angel. Isn't that a great story? It doesn't end there. It gets so much better. Verse number 12. "When, When Peter realized all this, he went to the house of Mary, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. John Mark. Remember the name John Mark. He'll play a part in the coming weeks. But he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and, uh, uh, who's, uh, and where many were gathered together and were praying. When the church, It says in verse 5, the church was praying. This is where they were, at the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. So, so Peter, knowing that's where they were, he went there. And verse 13... And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Rhoda comes to the door. It's a wooden door. There's a courtyard on the other side of the door. Then the house. They're in the house praying, Oh God, deliver Peter. And so Peter shows up at the gate and knocks. Rhoda goes to the door and hears Peter's voice. And then it says about Rhoda, it says, recognizing his voice in her joy, she did not open the gate. Peter's like... Let me in, let me in. Who is it? It's Peter. So Peter, it's you. So she leaves in there and runs inside, and she reported Peter standing at the gate. And they're like, Rhoda runs in, I'm like Rhoda, leave us alone. We're praying for Peter to be delivered. Don't interrupt us. But Peter's outside. Rhoda, don't interrupt us. We're praying for Peter to be delivered. But he's outside the gate. What? He's outside the gate. No, he's not outside the gate. He can't be outside the gate. He's in prison, and we're praying for God to deliver him. Don't interrupt us. Verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. You're out of your... What do you mean he's outside the gate? And so inside, it's like... He's outside the gate. He can't be outside the gate. We're praying for him, but he's outside the gate. Well, he can't be. Uh, you're crazy. Leave us alone. We're praying. And on and on it goes. And meanwhile, here's Peter. Hey, let me in. Let me in. Why? The guards might be coming after him. There's a very comical scene in the scripture here that we see here. Peter continued knocking, verse 16. And when they opened, they saw him. And they were amazed. They were amazed. Why were they amazed? They were amazed because God answered their prayer. Why should we be amazed when God answers our prayer? Don't be surprised when God does deliver. Don't be surprised when He doesn't. Don't be surprised when He does because God can do what? God can do anything. Our fourth lesson, I have to hurry because I want to have this time, this season of prayer. Don't be silent when God moves in your life. Don't be silent when God moves in your life. Tell somebody what the Lord has done for you. Tell somebody in your home, tell somebody in your business, tell somebody in your school, tell somebody in your neighborhood, tell somebody what the Lord has done for you. They may be in opposition to the Lord, in opposition to you, anything, all, but, but let them know what the Lord is up to. Let them know what the Lord is doing. Let them know the change that's taking place in your life. Verse number number 17, when, when all this shook out, Peter held up his hands. and said, all right, y'all be quiet for a minute. Y'all be quiet. And he told them. And reported everything that, that, had been, uh, that had been done. He described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And then he said, tell these things to James. This is not James, the brother of John, who's been killed. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who now believes and is a leader in the church. Tell James and tell the others what the Lord has done. And we need to follow that, don't we? Don't we need to do that? Don't we tell somebody what Jesus has done for us? Well... In 1857, the stories keep going on. I I, I didn't record all of them. One night when Dr. John Guirardot dismissed a prayer meeting for a spiritual awakening at Anson Street Presbyterian Church in Charleston, South Carolina, no one left. Prayer meeting's over. Y'all go home. Nobody left. You want to make a preacher get excited? First of all, show up for prayer meeting. And secondly, keep hanging around. The congregation, it says, stayed until midnight while the Lord powerfully worked. Eight weeks of nightly meetings followed. Even Hell Corner, New Hampshire. Did you know there's a place like that? Hell Corner, New Hampshire. What kind of place must that be? Hell's Corner, New Hampshire, was touched when one man's outrageous profanity led to a joking call for a prayer meeting. A notorious backslider tried to lead, but he broke down while praying, and the meetings continued under the leadership of another man, and 500 men were convicted of sin and turned to Christ. And many people in Hell Corner, New Hampshire became praying people. You know what helps people to become praying people? When they see God answer the prayers. Earnest prayers. Passionate prayers. Earnest and passionate prayers for the people. As we enter into this season of prayer, and a couple of folks will be getting in place now. As we enter into this season of prayer, I want to, to give you a couple of words and instruction. One is, you're welcome to, to stay right where you are And if if this thing scares you to death, nobody's going to come do anything to you. You can stay right where you are. You can even keep your eyes open and look around. Nothing's going to happen. You're welcome to sit there and pray. On the back of your bulletin, there's a listening guide. And on the bottom of that listening guide, I've listed several prayer prompts, earnest prayers for the church that I want to encourage you to be praying. Those same prayer prompts are going to be rotating around on the screen, Bible verses and prayer prompts. So you're welcome to sit right where you are, watch your bulletin and pray, watch the prayer prompts on the screen, and just begin to pray, and and you can certainly do that. You may be so inclined to just turn around to the person beside you or behind you and say, hey, let's pray right now, and just just pray out loud softly right where you are. You might want to grab somebody and walk across the room and say, let's get a little huddle over here, let's come up to the front, let's pray. This is not going to be long and drawn out unless you all refuse to leave, which won't hurt my feelings. We're going to have a little season of prayer. We're going to have a little season of prayer and I hope it goes something like this For God to crown the 21st century with a revival of pure and undefiled religion greater than any demonstration of the Spirit ever vouchsafed or graciously given to man Would you bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. I'm going to begin our season of prayer. When I say amen you do whatever you feel like you need to do Al's I was going to have a little music playing. He might sing a little bit underneath. and You just move around as you need to and take that little prayer prompt. and Let's just have a time. Let's just have a time. It won't last long. Let's just have a time. Lord Jesus, I pray. I pray that earnest prayers could be lifted up for believers who are struggling. I pray that earnest prayers in this place can be lifted up for the gospel and the sake of the gospel. I pray, O oh God, You'd help those of us that struggle with prayer. Oh, Lord, to find some renewed motivation and some renewed ways to go home and take our prayer prompts and pray there. Pray, Lord, you'd help this to be a season of prayer that is also a season of worship. There's also a motivation to make prayer a more vital part of our lives, our church, our connect groups, and our community. Oh, God, teach us to pray. Oh God, send a revival of pure and undefiled religion moved by your Holy Spirit. Change our lives and help us to not be silent about it. Use us for your glory, we pray all this in Jesus' name as we pray.